Thanks, Janine. What a great reading, hey? That's good. Yes, I'm sure you're as excited about that as I am, which is wonderful because I'm going to preach on it and you're going to listen with me, which is great. How about we pray and ask that God would help us and that we might share this passion for this passage by the end. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for these words that you uh, spoke through your servant Isaiah. I pray that they might live in our hearts today by your Holy Spirit. And we ask this in his name. Amen. All right, well, we're doing a series on God being on mission in the Old Testament, and it's been a, an exciting time. When, when we think about mission here at New Life, we talk to our community about New Life Anglican Church being a place that has hope, community, and that offers a fresh start with God. Hope, community, and a fresh start. Sounds like something I want. Uh, so that's what we say. That's, that's the message that's on our sign out the front there, which no one can see, and they still think this is a council building, and we, we welcome people every week into the building. So is this the council? Did you come in past a large sign that said, New Life, Hope, Community, and a Fresh Start? Anyway, uh, today I want to talk to you about uh, hope, the first one, hope. And you might think at some level uh, we, we all have hope. I think we have wish, wishful thinking but very few of us have grounded hope. Grounded hope is different to wishful thinking. I hope it's not going to rain tomorrow when the weather forecast says it's going to rain tomorrow. It really has no bearing on reality, does it? It's just I'd prefer not to get my shoes wet. Hope in the biblical sense is grounded in the security of who God is and what his plans and purposes are for the world. And so what I want us to see today, particularly from Isaiah, is reasons for a grounded hope. So where does that hope really come from? Where does it really come from, a hope like that? There's a great, uh, great little couple of verses in 1 John. And uh, it says this, it's, it says, Dear children, what a wonderful way to address the church. It says, Dear children, I write this so, to you so that you will not sin. Good idea. But it acknowledges the reality. If anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We have someone who will speak in our defense, is what he's saying. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He's the one who pays the price for our sins. But note this, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus has done something more than something for us personally. There's a message for the entire world. And we're reminded here, as we go back into the Old Testament, we're reminded that God's plan started off very specifically, didn't it? God's plan was to pick a nation and to care for them. One nation under God. Does that sound like something? Uh, one nation under God. A, a nation who would be a bright light, a shining ethical example of holiness being separate and pure and changed in a world that was going fundamentally the opposite direction. So God's mission was, I will raise up a precious people and I'll mark them out as distinctive across the whole world. But rather than just saving Israel, we've seen again and again and again through this series, I hope you're starting to get it, that God's plan is also global, that he has a plan for everyone who is not an Israelite, and that's that weird word, Gentiles. It's the catch-all bucket for everyone who is not an Israelite. So God has a specific plan that will include Israel, but he has this global plan that will include the Gentiles. And that's what we see in that reading from 1 John uh, just before. So God's plan, though, is not that these two 
plans are against each other, rather that through Israel, God will impact the whole world. It's in Israel that this bigger plan will actually come to pass. And so we see in the promise to Abraham, which we spoke of right the, right the way at the start of the series, in Genesis 12, we see this wonderful promise. God says to his chosen person, Abraham, the father of the whole Israelite nation, he says this, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Can you see that? Right at the start, Father Abraham had many. Right at that start, God is intending to bless the whole world through this man. And so we see that the mission to the Gentiles actually is no surprise. It's been there right from the start. Well, here's my Bible overview. I just want to put Isaiah in place for you. Uh, who was Isaiah? He was a prophet. He spoke to Israel at the time right towards the end of the reign of kings and just before God was about to send his people into exile. So something like 740 to 680 BC. Okay? So all the kings of Israel had been sinning and sinning and sinning and Isaiah says to them, God is saying to you, you're in big trouble. You're just about to lose the land. And he speaks to them a word of judgment, but wonderfully in the second half of the book, we get glimpses of the return of God's people. And in the distant future, Isaiah also tells us about the restoration of Israel and the coming judgment uh, through the servant who will love him. So this is Isaiah about 700 years before Jesus. So what's God doing in the world? Well, wonderfully, he is drawing Gentiles to himself. He's drawing you and I, people out there in Oran Park today, to himself. Let's have a look. We're going to go to Isaiah. If you can open it up again, that would be great. Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56. And uh, I'm going to read for us uh, verses 1 to 3 here. I think it was page 738. Isaiah 56 and verses uh, 1 to 3. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. Here's the thing. God's saying to his people, he's saying, actually, there'll be a time coming when foreigners will not be able to say, it's funny, isn't it? It's kind of a, a double negative. So no one will be able to say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. What could we say? How could we say it the positive way? God will include foreigners as his people. That might have been a more straightforward way to say it, but I'm reading the Bible, so this is the way God said it. The Lord will not exclude foreigners from his people. So how will God accept them? He was pretty serious about saying to his Israelites, you're my chosen people. So how will he include Gentiles? Well, firstly, we're going to see, and this is quite amazing. It's quite an incredible theme in Isaiah. God will be gathering people to himself. He'll be drawing them from the distant nations to himself. And so uh, I'm not quite sure it'll be via a chairlift, but you get the idea. Um, Being drawn towards the light is what's happening here. God will gather people. And so we see this in verses 6 to 10. The kinds of people who God will gather. 
It says in verses 6 to 10 of chapter 56, And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, to minister him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring, this is God doing it, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for the nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them beside those already gathered. So God's going to draw back Israel, but he also says, I'm going to be picking people from the nations and be drawing them all in to my holy nation. So what will mark these people who he draws back out? Well, first of all, they'll be Sabbath keepers. Does anyone know what the Sabbath is? Sunday? Saturday? Probably Saturday if you're a Jew. It's Saturday if you're a Jew. Sunday if you're a Christian. And what's the idea of Sabbath? What do we do on a Sabbath? A day of rest. A day devoted to the Lord. A day that you sleep in and don't have kids sport. I think that's what the world thinks. Here's what it says a number of times in this passage. In verse 2 it says, Blessed is the one who does this, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing even any evil. And it repeats it in verse 6 there, Foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it. So what's going on here? Why is the Sabbath so important? Because you kind of think, hey, it's one day of the week, not really a big deal. Why, does God, why is God so committed to looking after these foreigners who keep the Sabbath? Well, the first thing is, it's actually a huge difference. I was reading a, 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 a book last night that was saying the Babylonians, the Assyrians and the Egyptians, none of the contemporary cultures had a sense of stopping work on any day. Does that surprise you? Babylonians, Assyrians, Egyptians, the mighty powers of the world around, none of them stopped work. It was a distinctive of God's people to say, we are the people who stop work on one day a week. And why did they stop work? Does anyone know? Because the Lord rested on the seventh day. They were modeling their pattern on that of their God who commanded them, commandment number four, of the 10 he gave them was to have a Sabbath. Extraordinary, isn't it? It was to mark them out as different that God's people were to have a Sabbath. Probably to incur the wrath of all the hardworking other people who thought they were slackers. So the first thing was to be different. The second one, I think, is to show dependence. And if I can say this to you guys, it is an acknowledgement that God is in charge and not you. If you will down tools for a day, you are profoundly showing that you are depending on God. Because you could do a day more work, couldn't you? And almost none of us, whatever our life responsibilities are, could do with a day less to get them done in. You're right? So to, to take a Sabbath is profoundly a faithful act of dependence. Thirdly, it's an act of devotion because the day wasn't kicked back in a habit, hammock, right? It was actually to turn your attention and your devotion to the Lord. So set the day aside, but not just so you have a kip, but actually so you turn your heart devotedly without distraction to the Lord. At which point, 
Peter will remind me to tell you that we have an evening service and if you'd like to spend the whole day in worshipping the Lord, come back tonight. But here's the thing. The Sabbath was something that if you kept it, would mark you out as faithful. So first of all, there are people who keep the Sabbath. Secondly, God will draw back people who are covenant holders, who are clinging on to the Sabbath. It says there in verse uh, 6b, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, to my promise, who trust me with all their heart, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Isn't this beautiful? So what's God looking for? Keep the Sabbath. If you're a foreigner but you keep the Sabbath, you are absolutely showing that you've got God as your boss. If you're someone who trusts the covenant, you're showing I love and trust the word of my God. And so it's an act of faithfulness, but isn't God generous? What will happen is if you're a covenant holder, then he says that he will give them something profound. He'll make them joyful. See, that, that's upside down ahead, isn't it? You hold on to the covenant and you lose all these wonderful things that you'd like to do in life and you get God's heavy law on you. And here it says, if you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. Not open slather, but the Lord. You delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you more of the Lord. And guess what? You'll find him to be delightful. Covenant holders and faithful Sabbath keepers are the people that God's looking for. And incidentally, it's interesting, isn't it? What will the house be called? A house of prayer for all the nations. Doesn't that remind you of Jesus in the temple? Do you remember Jesus in the temple? In Mark eleven seventeen, 17, we have that bizarre bit where everybody goes, hey, I can get angry because Jesus got angry. Do we, do we know that? See, didn't Jesus, even Jesus got angry. So in the temple, Jesus goes and says he overturned the tables of the money, the money changers and he scattered the doves and he drove the cattle out. And why was he so angry? Because he said this space, this court of the Gentiles in the temple itself was filled up as a market so the Gentiles couldn't come in. And the reason Jesus is furiously angry is God's plan and purpose is for the Gentiles to be included in his people. And so it's not just that Jesus was having a bad hair day and therefore my anger is justified. If you can be righteously angry at the lack of inclusion of the Gentiles, well, power to you, but I don't think that'll excuse getting upset about the washing up. Jesus was angry at his contemporary's obstruction of God's mission. This place will be a place of prayer for all the nations. And here it is, you've turned it into a den of robbers is what Jesus says. So tick that off your list. You can't justify your anger by looking at Jesus getting upset. But you can be passionate about God's mission to include the Gentiles. Hey, there's a thing called, uh, I learned when I was, uh, I used to work in lighting. Uh, for a company called Philips. And um, there's a wonderful uh, phrase I learned there called uh, phototropism. Uh, Phototropism, or being phototropic, is that people and plants are attracted to the light. Can you see this plant here? Or these plants, I think they're alfalfa or something like that. What they do is they're growing towards the... Like people here, we are absolutely attracted to the light. So if everything goes dark here, right, and I put a light on in that corner over there, I'm telling you, you are not staring this direction. 
Just like those plants, we are attracted to the light. It's actually bound up inside of us and inside of our humanity. Now, interestingly enough, God's second plan to reach the Gentiles is to make Israel glowing. Is to make Israel glowing. Go over to chapter 60 with me and have a look at this. Chapter 60. In chapter 60, uh, I think it was page 762, is that right? 742. 42. In chapter 60, verses 1 to 5, we hear this. Arise, shine, your light has come. This is God speaking to his people. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, thick darkness is over all the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth of the seas will be brought to you. Your riches, the riches of the nations will be brought to you. Isn't this amazing? God's light is going to rise, but it's almost like his light rises inside them and then they shine forth into a dark world. God says, arise and shine. His people are to glow. They are to be a light in the darkness. It's a beautiful image. And so then what we see is a whole string of places that are mentioned. Okay, And you kind of go, and incidentally, Janine, well read. You did very well. It's always, it's always a bit of a minefield, isn't it, when we get to these Bible places. But I want to just show you why this string of places that are mentioned. Uh, one in, uh, in 60 uh, verse 6, uh, we see that Sheba is mentioned. Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephrah. And all from Sheba will come bearing golden incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. Does anyone remember anyone else from Sheba? Famously, the... The queen of Sheba. The queen of Sheba came to Solomon when he was at the absolute height of his glory. And now what God's saying is at the end, all the people of Sheba will come into Israel. How brilliant. Sheba is down south, south of Israel. Then it mentions in 60 verse 9, Surely the islands look to me. In the lead are the ships of Tarshish, bringing your children from afar with their silver and gold to the honour of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendour. Does anyone know when we mentioned Tarshish recently? Sorry? Jonah, in the book of Jonah. Now, where was Tarshish? Does anyone remember? Spain. It was the ends of the earth. Okay, the absolute ends of the earth. And here in Isaiah, what we're seeing is ships will come literally from the ends of the earth, where? To Israel. Jonah thought he could flee to the ends of the earth to escape God. And now we see God's inescapable mission is drawing people from the ends of the earth to himself. How good is that? Thirdly, from Lebanon. If we look in 60 verse 13, the glory of Lebanon will come to you the juniper, the fir, and the cypress together to adorn my sanctuary, and I will glorify the place for my feet. Does anyone know when else Lebanon occurs in the Bible? People take cedars from Lebanon. Solomon took cedars from Lebanon to panel the inside of the temple because they were the very best. And here what we're saying is not timber coming into the presence of God. Yeah? 
But people from the Gentile nation to the north will come into the presence of God. Isn't this brilliant? So what we have is from all the points of the compass, we have people coming to Zion. And uh, what is Zion? It's like, I don't know, it's like theme and variation for the name Jerusalem, okay? Zion is the holy city, the city of God. And so we see in verses 14 to 16, the children of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion, the Holy One of Israel. Although you have been forsaken and hated with no one traveling through, I will make you the everlasting pride and the joy of all generations. You will drink the milk of nations and be nursed at royal breasts. Then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. What Israel is saying is your city will be destroyed. It'll be rubble. But one day God will rise it up. One day you will shine forth in it. One day he will draw all your enemies to you to be together the people of the Lord. That is a stunning hope. That is a stunning hope and a glorious promise. They'll be drawn together for two things. For salvation, it says in 55.5, Surely you will summon nations you know not. And nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. See, this glowing Israel, Israel's splendor will draw people and will save people. He'll draw them together for salvation. But if you don't come, and this is an important note that we need to hear, God will draw them for salvation, but he will also draw them for judgment. You need to hear this. For the national kingdom, it says in 60 verse 12, that will not serve you will perish. It will be utterly ruined. See, God is glad to draw the nations to himself. He he loves to show mercy. But if you refuse, the nation that will not bow the knee will perish. You can't ignore the king of the universe and think that that's a life-sustaining decision. One day you'll meet him. And he'll call you to account. And so here we see the jealousy, that that precious love of God. He won't share you with another. He wants you from himself. And the justice of the true king. So God will gather people. He will cause Israel to glow. But the engine room for him drawing sinful people to himself is in the giving of his son. In the giving of his son. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. I'd love you to do that with me if you can. Ephesians chapter 2. So it's in the New Testament uh, towards the back. If someone finds the page, that would be very helpful. We're going to Ephesians chapter 2. 1174. Thank you very much. Thanks, Lorraine. 1174. Now, as you're looking it up, uh, does anyone know what this barrier is about? Uh, Yep, mate. Splitting supporters in, um, in watching chess, football. It's very important that we say that, isn't it? There aren't too many fans who get as excited and riled up as football supporters, but this is a stadium for football supporters. And if you're on one side of that fence, do you think they're encouraging you to interact with the others? In fact, nowadays, they actually bring them from opposite sides of the stadiums. They bring them in their own buses. They have police routes. There are literally streets you can walk down to the game so you never meet a supporter from the other side. That is a dividing wall of hostility. Yeah? It keeps you from killing each other. Incidentally, 
This is not hugely different to the way Israel would have viewed the world around them. You outsiders are beyond the love and hope of God. We need to be protected from you. You need to be shut off from us. I want you to listen how awesome is the New Testament. Have a listen to me and what Jesus has done in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 11 to 16. Have a listen to this. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, incidentally, that's us, okay? So just read you. And called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done by the body in human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Does that sound dire? But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. It is a stunning picture. Gentiles and Jews united in Christ, one new people of God through the cross. What's my image? Rather than soccer supporters trying to kill each other, I thought, what about the Olympics? When people from every nation, tribe, and language come together, yeah, and they sit next to each other and it's supposed to be joyful, although it's highly commercial and we still compete. But this picture of multiple flags, multiple nations joining in joyfully. You see, Jesus' obedience and death sets aside the law that divided Jews from Gentiles. He made a way for us to be one people of God. Uh, now, I assume all of us are a little bit too old to have a backstage pass anytime recently. But, uh, but here we go. This is someone who was lucky enough to get the backstage pass. Does everyone know what the backstage pass is? You, you don't just get to be in the, in the, in the crowd for the, uh, the concert that you go to watch. But you get let into the back and you can go and hang out where the band hangs out, right? In the Holy of Holies. So the, the, the backstage pass, the access to all areas pass, lets you in a place that normally you can't come. Into that special relationship with the band. Have a listen to what Jesus has done for us. I like to think he gave us a backstage pass, all access. Have a listen to this, verses 17 to 18. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. What's he saying? Jesus' death grants access to the Father for former enemies. You and I can call God the Father our Father. He calls us children. He says that we can boldly approach the throne. Isn't that what we just sang before? Boldly. Here's the thing. Access all areas. How's it made possible through Jesus? Shoulder to shoulder with Jews. You and I are as privileged as God's special people in coming into his presence. And what does that mean for us? We are no longer outsiders. Have a listen to verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Yeah? Your citizenship changed. 
Your citizenship is now in heaven, and that is your true home. And we are your true brothers and sisters, with Christians in China and Papua New Guinea and Japan and South America, all over the world. Africa, of course, they're probably the majority. Uh, But we will be standing with them shoulder to shoulder in fellowship and citizenship because of Jesus. And that's God's ultimate plan right from the start, right from when he spoke to Abraham. Jesus incorporates outsiders into his father's house as sons and daughters. What a privilege. So what changes between the Testaments? If I'm to sum it up for you, here's what changes. In the Old Testament, God says he's going to draw all people in. Can you see it's a magnet? You with me? Great illustration there. Yep. Good, good, good. So he'll draw them in. In the, old, in, the, so in the New Testament, Jesus says, what? Go into all the world and make disciples. And so... The difference is, mission in the New Testament is outward. You are flung out into the world. You are still to be light, but you are flung out to take this light into the ends of the earth. In the Old Testament, we see God will draw people in. In the New Testament, we see we are flung out to be that light in the world. So what does the fulfillment of this vision look like? Where else could we go? I want you to come to Revelation with me. Have a look. So where's the book of Revelation? Go to the back. Find the back page of your Bible and work back just a touch to Revelation 21. And I want to read to you verses 22 to 27. As we listen, I want you to hear Isaiah, okay? Listen to Isaiah here. It was written by a guy called John, not Isaiah, but I'm getting you to hear the reference, right? I did not see a temple in that city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Ah! That's where we're heading. We go out to take the message into all the world and God will draw people from all the nations to himself and they'll come and dump their treasure at the foot of the cross and honour the Lamb. Giddy up. What does it mean to never close the gate of a castle? It means you're utterly secure because all enemies have been vanquished. The future is glorious. It is united. It is every nation before the Lamb. So what must we do? Well, I want to say to you, first of all, if you haven't accepted the invitation of the King to come in, come in. Today is a great day to be saved, to say, I want to spend eternity in that city with the Lamb on the throne. Today is a great day to say, I want to give up running away. I understand that being a rebel before the justice of the true King will mean that I'll be utterly destroyed. Give up. Change your citizenship. Find in Jesus forgiveness and hope. And if you found that citizenship, if you can produce the citizenship card that is the Holy Spirit in your hearts, if you can produce that, then I want to say go out. Be flung forth as light into this dark world and take the message of hope that we have. Live in hope. Display a glowing community here in Oran Park and proclaim the fresh start 
that is available in Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, this is a glorious picture that you revealed to your servant Isaiah. I pray, Lord, that you would fill our hearts with passion to see it made possible. People from every tribe, language, and nation drawn into you. We pray, Father, that you might indeed fling us out as sparks of light into this dark world. We pray that we might give it and that we might live it. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.